0: part third of nostromo by joseph conrad the lighthouse chapter one this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter dan part third the lighthouse chapter one directly the cargo-boat had slipped away from the wharf and got lost in the darkness of the harbour The Europeans of Sulaco separated to prepare for the coming of the Monterist regime, which was approaching Sulaco from the mountains as well as from the sea. This bit of manual work in loading the silver was their last concerted action. It ended the three days of danger, during which, according to the newspaper press of Europe, their energy had preserved the town from the calamities of popular disorder. At the shore end of the jetty, Captain Mitchell said goodnight and turned back. His intention was to walk the planks of the wharf till the steamer from Esmeralda turned up. The engineers of the railway staff, collecting their Basque and Italian workmen, marched them away to the railway yards, leaving the Custom House, so well defended on the first day of the riot, standing open to the four winds of heaven their men had conducted themselves bravely and faithfully during the famous three days of sulaco in a great part this faithfulness and that courage had been exercised in self-defence rather than in the cause of those material interests to which charles gould had pinned his faith amongst the cries of the mob not the least loud had been the cry of death to foreigners it was indeed a lucky circumstance for sulaco that the relations of those imported workmen with the people of the country had been uniformly bad from the first. Dr. Monygham, going to the door of Viola's kitchen, observed this retreat marking the end of the foreign interference, this withdrawal of the army of material progress from the field of Costaguana revolutions. Algarobe torches carried on the outskirts of the moving body sent their penetrating aroma into his nostrils. Their light, sweeping along the front of the house, made the letters of the inscription ALBERGO D'ITALIA UNA leap out black from end to end of the long wall. His eyes blinked in the clear blaze. Several young men, mostly fair and tall, shepherding this mob of dark bronzed heads, surmounted by the glint of slanting rifle-barrels, nodded to him familiarly as they went by. The doctor was a well-known character. Some of them wondered what he was doing there. Then, on the flank of their workmen, they tramped on, following the line of rails. "'Withdrawing your people from the harbour, said the doctor, addressing himself to the chief engineer of the railway, who had accompanied Charles Gould so far on his way to the town, walking by the side of the horse with his hand on the saddle-bar. They had stopped just across the open door to let the workmen cross the road. As quick as I can, we are not a political faction, answered the engineer meaningly, and we are not going to give our new rulers a handle against the railway. You approve me, Gould? Absolutely, said Charles Gould's impassive voice, high up and outside the dim parallelogram of light falling on the road through the open door. With Sotillo expected from one side and Pedro Montero from the other, The engineer-in-chief's only anxiety now was to avoid a collision with either. Salaco, for him, was a railway station, a terminus, workshops, a great accumulation of stores. As against the mob, the railway defended its property, but politically the railway was neutral. He was a brave man, and in that spirit of neutrality he had carried proposals of truce to the self-appointed chiefs of the Popular Party, the deputies Fuentes and Gamacho. Bullets were still flying about them when he had crossed the plaza on that mission, waving above his head a white napkin belonging to the table linen of the Amarillo Club. He was rather proud of this exploit, and, reflecting that the doctor, busy all day with the wounded in the patio of the Casa Gould, had not had time to hear the news, he began a succinct narrative. He had communicated to them the intelligence from the construction camp as to Pedro Montero. The brother of the victorious general, he had assured them, could be expected at Sulaco any time now. This news, as he anticipated, when shouted out of the window by Senor Gambacho, induced a rush of the mob along the Campo Road towards ranson The two deputies also, after shaking hands with him effusively, mounted and galloped off to meet the great man. I have misled them a little as to the time, the chief engineer confessed, However hard he rides, he can scarcely get here before the morning, but my object is attained. I've secured several hours' peace for the losing party. But I did not tell them anything about Sotillo, for fear they would take it into their heads to try to get hold of the harbour again, either to oppose him or welcome him. There's no saying which. There was gold, Silver, on which rests the remnant of our hopes. Decoud's retreat had to be thought of, too. I think the railway has done pretty well by its friends, without compromising itself hopelessly. Now the parties must be left to themselves. Costa Guana for the Costa Graneros, interjected the doctor sardonically. It is a fine country, and they have raised a fine crop of hates, vengeance, murder and rapine, those sons of the country. Well, I am one of them, Charles Gould's voice sounded calmly, and I must be going on to see to my own crop of trouble. My wife has driven straight on, Doctor. Yes, was quiet on this side. Mrs. Gould has taken the two girls with her. Charles Gould rode on, and the engineer-in-chief followed the Doctor indoors. That man is calmness personified, he said appreciatively, dropping on a bench and stretching his well-shaped legs in cycling stockings nearly across the doorway. He must be extremely sure of himself. If that's all he is sure of, then he is sure of nothing, said the doctor. He had perched himself against the end of the table. He nursed his cheek in the palm of one hand while the other sustained the elbow. It is the last thing a man ought to be sure of. The candle, half consumed and burning dimly with a long wick, lighted up from below his inclined face, whose expression, affected by the drawn-in cicatrices in the cheeks, had something vaguely unnatural, an exaggerated, remorseful bitterness. As he sat there he had the air of meditating upon sinister things. The engineer-in-chief gazed at him for a time before he protested. I really don't see that, For me there seems to be nothing else. However, he was a wise man, but he could not conceal his contempt for that sort of paradox, in fact. Dr. Monygham was not liked by the Europeans of Sulaco. His outward aspect of an outcast, which he preserved even in Mrs. Gould's drawing-room, provoked unfavourable criticism. There could be no doubt of his intelligence, and as he had lived for over twenty years in the country, the pessimism of his outlook could not be altogether ignored. But instinctively, in self-defence of their activities and hopes, his hearers put it to the account of some hidden imperfection in the man's character. It was known that many years before, when quite young, he had been made by Goodsman Bento chief medical officer of the army, Not one of the Europeans then in the service of Costaguana had been so much liked and trusted by the fierce old dictator. Afterwards his story was not so clear. It lost itself amongst the innumerable tales of conspiracies and plots against the tyrant, as a stream is lost in an arid belt of sandy country before it emerges, diminished and troubled perhaps on the other side the doctor made no secret of it that he had lived for years in the wildest parts of the republic wandering with almost unknown indian tribes in the great forests of the far interior where the great rivers have their sources but it was mere aimless wandering he had written nothing collected nothing brought nothing for science out of the twilight of the forests which seemed to cling to his battered personality limping about sulaco where it had drifted in casually, only to get stranded on the shores of the sea. It was also known that he had lived in a state of destitution till the arrival of the Goulds from Europe. Don Carlos and Donna Amelia had taken up the mad English doctor when it became apparent that for all his savage independence he could be tamed by kindness. Perhaps it was only hunger that had tamed him. In years gone by he had certainly been acquainted with Charles Gould's father in Santa Marta, and now, no matter what were the dark passages of his history, as the medical officer of the San Tome mine, he became a recognised personality. He was recognised, but not unreservedly accepted. So much defiant eccentricity and such an outspoken scorn for mankind seemed to point to mere recklessness of judgment, the bravado of guilt. Besides, since he had become again of some account, vague whispers had been heard that years ago, when fallen into disgrace and thrown into prison by Gutsman Bento at the time of the so-called Great Conspiracy, he had betrayed some of his best friends amongst the conspirators. Nobody pretended to believe that whisper. The whole story of the Great Conspiracy was hopelessly involved and obscure. It is admitted in Costaguana that there never had been a conspiracy except in the diseased imagination of the tyrant, and therefore nothing and no one to betray, though the most distinguished Costaguaneros had been imprisoned and executed upon that accusation. The procedure had dragged on for years, decimating the better class like a pestilence. The mere expression of sorrow for the fate of executed kinsmen had been punished with death, don jose avellanos was perhaps the only one living who knew the whole story of those unspeakable cruelties he had suffered from them himself and he with a shrug of the shoulders and a nervous jerky gesture of the arm was wont to put away from him as it were every allusion to it but whatever the reason dr monygham a personage in the administration of the gould concession treated with reverend awe by the miners and indulged in his peculiarities by mrs gould remained somehow outside the pale. It was not from any liking for the doctor that the engineer-in-chief had lingered in the inn upon the plain. He liked old Viola much better. He had come to look upon the albergo de Una as a dependence of the railway. Many of his subordinates had their quarters there. Mrs Gould's interest in the family conferred upon it a sort of distinction. The engineer-in-chief, with an army of workers under his orders, appreciated the moral influence of the old Garibaldino upon his countrymen. His austere, old-world republicanism had a severe, soldier-like standard of faithfulness and duty, as if the world were a battlefield where men had to fight for the sake of universal love and brotherhood instead of a more or less large share of booty. Poor old chap, he said after he had heard the doctor's account of Teresa, He'll never be able to keep the place going by himself. I shall be sorry. He is quite alone up there, grunted Dr. Monygham, with a toss of his heavy head towards the narrow staircase. Every living soul has cleared out, and Mrs. Gould took the girls away just now. It might not be over-safe for them to come here before very long. Of course, as a doctor, I can do nothing more here But she has asked me to stay with old Viola, and as I have no horse to get back to the mine, where I ought to be, I make no difficulty to stay. They can do without me in the town. "'I have a good mind to remain with you, doctor, till we see whether anything happens tonight at the harbour. declared the engineer-in-chief. "'He must not be molested by Sotillo's soldiery, who may push on as far as this at once.' Sotillo used to be very cordial to me at the Goulds and at the club. How that man'll ever dare to look any of his friends here in the face, I can't imagine. He'll no doubt begin by shooting some of them to get over the first awkwardness, said the doctor. Nothing in this country serves better your military man who has changed sides than a few summary executions. He spoke with a gloomy positiveness that left no room for protest. The engineer-in-chief did not attempt any. He simply nodded several times regretfully, and then said, I think we shall be able to mount you in the morning, doctor. Our peons have recovered some of our stampeded horses. By riding hard and taking a wide circuit of Los Hatos and along the edge of the forest, clear of Renson altogether, you may hope to reach the San Tomé bridge without being interfered with. The mine is just now, to my mind, the safest place for anybody at all compromised, I only wish the railway was as difficult to touch. Am I compromised, Dr. Monaghan brought out slowly after a short silence? The whole Gould concession is compromised. It could not have remained forever outside the political life of the country, if those convulsions may be called life. The thing is, can it be touched? The moment was bound to come when neutrality would become impossible, and Charles Gould understood this well. I believe he is prepared for every extremity. A man of his sort has never contemplated remaining indefinitely at the mercy of ignorance and corruption. It was like being a prisoner in a cavern of banditti with the price of your ransom in your pocket and buying your life from day to day. Your mere safety, not your liberty, mind, doctor. I know what I'm talking about the image at which you shrug your shoulders is perfectly correct especially if you conceive such a prisoner endowed with the power of replenishing his pocket by means as remote from the faculties of his captors as if they were magic you must have understood that as well as i do doctor he was in the position of the goose with the golden eggs I broached this matter to him as far back as St. John's visit here. The prisoner of stupid and greedy banditti is always at the mercy of the first imbecile ruffian who may blow out his brains in a fit of temper or for some prospect of an immediate big haul. The tale of killing the goose with the golden eggs has not been evolved for nothing out of the wisdom of mankind. It is a story that will never grow old. That is why Charles Gould, in his deep, dumb way, has countenanced the ribierist mandate, the first public act that promised him safety on other than venal grounds. Ribierism has failed, as everything merely rational fails in this country. But Gould remains logical in wishing to save this big lot of silver. Deku's plan of a counter-revolution may be practicable or not. It may have a chance or it may not have a chance with all my experience of this revolutionary continent i can hardly yet look at their methods seriously Decoud has been reading to us his draft of a proclamation and talking very well for two hours about his plan of action He had arguments which should have appeared solid enough if we, members of old, stable, political and national organisations, were not startled by the mere idea of a new state evolved like this out of the head of a scoffing young man fleeing for his life with a proclamation in his pocket to a rough, jeering, half-bred swashbuckler who in this part of the world is called a general. It sounds like a comic fairy tale, and behold, it may come off, because it is true to the very spirit of the country. "'Is the silver gone off, then?' asked the doctor moodily. "'The chief engineer pulled out his watch. "'By Captain Mitchell's reckoning, and he ought to know, "'it has been gone long enough now to be some three or four miles outside the harbour. "'And, as Mitchell says, "'Nostromo is the sort of seaman to make the best of his opportunities.' "'Here the doctor grunted so heavily that the other changed his tone. "'You have a poor opinion of that move, doctor? "'But why?' charles gould has got to play his game out though he is not the man to formulate his conduct even to himself perhaps let alone to others it may be that the game has been partly suggested to him by holroyd but it accords with his character too and that is why it has been so successful haven't they come to calling him el rey de salaco and santa Marta? a nickname may be the best record of a success that's what i call putting the face of a joke upon the body of a truth my dear sir, when I first arrived in Santa Marta, I was struck by the way all those journalists, demagogues, members of Congress, and all those generals and judges cringed before a sleepy-eyed advocate without practice, simply because he was the plenipotentiary of the good concession. Sir John, when he came out, was impressed too. A new state with that plump dandy decou for the first president, mused Dr. Monningham, nursing his cheek and swinging his leg all the time. Upon my word, and why not, the chief engineer retorted in an unexpectedly earnest and confidential voice. It was as if something subtle in the air of Costaguana had inoculated him with the local faith in pronunciamentos. All at once he began to talk, like an expert revolutionist, of the instrument ready at hand in the intact army at Cahita, which could be brought back in a few days to Salaco if only Decoud managed to make his way at once down the coast. For the military chief there was Barrios, who had nothing but a bullet to expect from Montero, his former professional rival and bitter enemy. Barrios's concurrence was assured. As to his army, it had nothing to expect from Montero either, not even a month's pay. From that point of view, the existence of the treasure was of enormous importance. The mere knowledge that it had been saved from the Monterist would be strong inducement for the Cahita troops to embrace the cause of the new state. The doctor turned round and contemplated his companion for some time. "'This decou, I see, is a persuasive young beggar,' he remarked at last. "'And pray, is it for this, then, that Charles Gould has let the whole lot of ingots go out to sea in charge of that Nostromo?' "'Charles Gould,' said the engineer-in-chief, "'has said no more about his motive than usual. You know he doesn't talk.' But we all here know his motive, and he has only one, the safety of the San Tomé mine, with the preservation of the Gould concession, in the spirit of his compact with Holroyd. Holroyd is another uncommon man, they understand each other's imaginative side. One is thirty, the other nearly sixty, and they have been made for each other. To be a millionaire, and such a millionaire as Holroyd, is like being eternally young, The audacity of youth reckons upon what it fancies an unlimited time at its disposal, but a millionaire has unlimited means in his hands, which is better. One's time on earth is an uncertain quantity, but about the long reach of millions there is no doubt. The introduction of a pure form of Christianity into this continent is a dream for a youthful enthusiast, and I have been trying to explain to you why Holroyd, at fifty-eight, is like a man on the threshold of life and better, too. He's not a missionary, but the San Tome mine holds just that for him. I assure you in sober truth that he could not manage to keep this out of a strictly business conference upon the finances of Costaguana he had with Sir John a couple of years ago. Sir John mentioned it with amazement in a letter he wrote to me here from San Francisco when on his way home. Upon my word, doctor, things seem to be worth noting by what they are in themselves, "'I begin to believe that the only solid thing about them "'is the spiritual value which everyone discovers "'in his own form of activity.' "'Bah!' interrupted the doctor, "'without stopping for an instant "'the idle swinging movement of his legs. "'Self-flattery, food for that vanity "'which makes the world go round. "'Meantime, what do you think is going to happen "'to the treasure floating about the gulf "'with the great Capataz and the great politician?' "'Why are you uneasy about it, doctor?' I, uneasy? And what the devil is it to me? I put no spiritual value into my desires or my opinions or my actions. They have not enough vastness to give me room for self-flattery. Look, for instance, I should certainly have liked to ease the last moments of that poor woman, and I can't. It's impossible. Have you met the impossible face to face? Or have you, the Napoleon of railways, no such word in your dictionary?' Is she bound to have a very bad time of it? asked the chief engineer, with humane concern. Slow, heavy footsteps moved across the planks, above the heavy, hard wood beams of the kitchen. Then, down the narrow opening of the staircase, made in the thickness of the wall, and narrow enough to be defended by one man against twenty enemies, came the murmur of two voices, one faint and broken, the other deep and gentle, answering and and in its graver tone covering the weaker sound. The two men remained still and silent till the murmurs ceased, then the doctor shrugged his shoulders and muttered, Yes, she's bound to, and I could do nothing if I went up now. A long period of silence above and below ensued. I fancy, began the engineer in a subdued voice, that you mistrust Captain Mitchell's capiteurs mistrust him, muttered the doctor through his teeth. I believe him capable of anything, even of the most absurd fidelity. I am the last person he spoke to before he left the wharf, you know. The poor woman up there wanted to see him, and I let him go up to her. The dying must not be contradicted, you know. She seemed then fairly calm and resigned. But the scoundrel in those ten minutes or so has done or said something which seems to have driven her into despair. You know went on the doctor hesitatingly women are so very unaccountable in every position and at all times of life that i thought sometimes she was in a way don't you see in love with him the capataz the rascal has his own charm indubitably or he would not have made the conquest of all the populace of the town "'No, no, I'm not absurd. "'I may have given a wrong name to some strong sentiment for him "'on her part to an unreasonable and simple attitude "'a woman is apt to take up emotionally towards a man. "'She used to abuse him to me frequently, "'which, of course, is not inconsistent with my idea, not at all. "'It looked to me as if she were always thinking of him. "'He was something important in her life. "'You know I have seen a lot of those people.' Whenever I came down from the mine, Mrs. Gould used to ask me to keep my eye on them. She likes Italians. She has lived a long time in Italy, I believe, and she took a special fancy to that old Garibaldino. A remarkable chap enough, a rugged and dreamy character, living in the republicanism of his young days as if in a cloud. He has encouraged much of the Capitazzo's confounded nonsense, the high-strung, exalted old beggar. What sort of nonsense, wondered the chief engineer. I found the Capitaz always a very shrewd and sensible fellow, absolutely fearless and remarkably useful, a perfect handy man. Sir John was greatly impressed by his resourcefulness and attention when he made that overland journey from Santa Marta. Later on, as you might have heard, he rendered us a service by disclosing to the then chief of police the presence in the town of some professional thieves who came from a distance to wreck and rob our monthly pay-train. He has certainly organized the lighterage service of the harbour for the OSN company with great ability. He knows how to make himself obeyed, foreigner though he is. It is true that the cargadores are strangers here too, for the most part, immigrants, islenos. His prestige is his fortune, muttered the doctor sourly. The man has proved his trustworthiness up to the hilt on innumerable occasions and in all sorts of ways, argued the engineer. When this question of the silver arose, Captain Mitchell naturally was very warmly of the opinion that his capataz was the only man fit for the trust. As a sailor, of course, I suppose so, but as a man, don't you know, Gould, Decoud, and myself judged that it didn't matter in the least who went. Any boatman would have done just as well. Pray, what could a thief do with such a lot of ingots? If he ran off with them, he would have in the end to land somewhere, and how could he conceal his cargo from the knowledge of the people ashore? We dismissed that consideration from our minds. Moreover, Decoud was going. There have been occasions when the Capitas has been more implicitly trusted. He took a slightly different view, the doctor said. I heard him declare in this very room that it would be the most desperate affair of his life. He made a sort of verbal will here in my hearing, appointing old Viola his executor and by jove do you know he's hes not grown rich by his fidelity to you good people of the railway and the harbour i suppose he obtained some how do you say that some spiritual value for his labours or else i don't know why the devil he should be faithful to you gould mitchell or anybody else he knows this country well. He knows, for instance, that Gamacho, the deputy from Jarira, has been nothing else but a tramposo of the commonest sort, a petty peddler of the campo, till he managed to get enough goods on credit from Azani to manage a little store in the wilds, and got himself elected by the drunken mozzos that hang about the Estancias, and the poorest sort of rancheros who were in his debt. And Gamacho, who tomorrow will be probably one of our high officials, is a stranger too, and is leno. He might have been a cargador on the OSN wharf, had he not, the posadero of Rinson is ready to swear it, murdered a peddler in the woods and stolen his pack to begin life on. And do you think that Gamacho, then, would have ever become a hero with the democracy of this place, like our Capitas? Of course not. He isn't half the man. No, decidedly, I think that Nostromo is a fool. The doctor's talk was distasteful to the builder of railways. "'It is impossible to argue that point,' he said philosophically. "'Each man has his gifts. "'You should have heard Gamacho haranguing his friends in the street. "'He has a howling voice, and he shouted like mad, "'lifting his clenched fist right above his head "'and throwing his body half out of the window. "'At every pause the rabble below yelled, "'Down with the oligarchs! Viva la libertad!' "'Fuentes' inside looked extremely miserable.' You know he's the brother of Jorge Voentes, who has been Minister of the Interior for six months or so, some few years back. Of course, he has no conscience, but he is a man of birth and education, at one time the Director of the Customs of Cahita. That idiot brute gamacho fastened himself upon him with his following of the lowest rabble. His sickly fear of that ruffian was the most rejoicing sight imaginable. He got up and went to the door to look out towards the harbour. All quiet, he said. I wonder if Satya really means to turn up here. End of part third, The Lighthouse, chapter one.